So welcome to another episode of the Privileged Man podcast with Sir Andrew Strauss. Straussy was a legendary England cricket captain, becoming one of only three Englishmen to win the Ashes both in England and Australia. I start off the podcast getting in as much cricket trivia as possible before settling into a deeper conversation on how Andrew dealt with the tragically early death of his beloved wife Ruth and the legacy it ultimately and stunningly created through the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Andrew's openness and vulnerability to talk about his grief is remarkably courageous and I'm hugely grateful to him for coming on the podcast and modelling this type of leadership. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review and share episodes on your social channels. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact and the more men we can support. Now, on to the main event. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here on the Privileged Man podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolute honour. Absolute honour. Well, I thought for the cricket fans out there, I would start off with some quick-fire cricket questions and then uh, we'll get into the more meaty bones of, of life questions after that. How's that? Okay, yeah, let's strike while the iron's hot. No easy introduction for me then, by the looks of things. <laughs> no, sorry, straight into it. What was your best moment? Holding up the ashes in Sydney 2010-11, or January 2011 it was, actually. Awesome. Yeah, good moment. I was there two years later. It wasn't quite the same experience. Didn't work quite, <laughs> quite the same way, did it? <laughs> uh, worst moment? Uh, 2006 ashes, uh, that that game in Adelaide where Australia sort of somehow managed to beat us out of a, an impregnable position. Awful, awful moment. Biggest rivalry, personal rivalry? Mornay Morkel bowled at me. So I don't, I don't think he would see me as much as a rival, but I had a lot of sleepless nights thinking about him. Right. <laughs> How about Murray? Was he not up there? Murray? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think probably actually Shane Warne I could go back on that. Probably Warren would be up there, but he finished in 2006. For a lot of my career, I didn't play against him. But yeah, Warren and Murley both equally hard. But Warney, of course, had that incredible sort of charisma and you sort of work the the crowd, so to speak. And uh, that was very, very challenging facing him. Yeah, right. And and did you face Akhtar, Sherb Akhtar? I did, yeah. Yeah, quite a few times. Yeah, that wasn't fun either. Favourite ground? Lords, simple. Home ground. I uh, had so many amazing matches there, amazing memories and you know, some memorable performances sort of personally as well. Yeah, I remember watching a few. And with that said, it seems to be a thing that when I go to Lords, which I'm a member of the MCC, luckily, England seems to struggle. Is that just me or is that an actual thing? Uh, I think traditionally we have, uh, I don't think we've necessarily struggled. I think we've struggled against Australia there mainly. But yeah, look, I definitely feel like other teams come there and for a lot of them it feels like they're one and only time to play at Lords. And, and I suppose that can either over-egg you, so to speak, in terms of your emotions or it can get you in a really good mindset to play well. And I suppose for a lot of those players, it seems to bring out the best in them. But uh, yeah, I mean, our record when I was playing was pretty good there, really. So I think maybe that's overplayed to a certain degree. And we struggled against the Aussies there. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I remember watching, you know, you guys, you particularly against Glenn McGrath back in the 2000s. That'd be right in saying? Yeah, 2005. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. when we got knocked over. Yeah. Then he rolled his ankle, didn't he? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. 
yeah it's, it was nothing to do with that the win so we'll just gloss over that point <laughs> um greatest influence in cricket probably justin langer actually he was a sort of mentor of mine early days at middlesex when he was captain and overseas player and yeah, I think he just really sort of instilled in me what it would take to become an international cricketer and you had to sort of separate yourself from the sort of the culture of county cricket, really. And I think if I hadn't had that, I don't think I would have done it, quite frankly. That's quite a statement about county cricket in itself. Well, it certainly was back then, yeah. Yeah, that is for sure. I mean, I, I think very sort of comfortable people not wanting to be out of their comfort zone too much. Not really, almost if you were seen to be really keen to progress, then that would be slightly frowned upon. That was a sort of prevailing culture back then. I think it is a lot better now, but it's still not as good as I think it could be. And certainly when you go to Australia and other parts of the world, you do sense a more desperation to get better and to be the best that they they can be. Hmm. Wow, super interesting. I could do a whole podcast, obviously, about cricket, but well, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll keep racing on. Hardest decision on the field? Uh, well, certainly. I, I mean, I don't remember any being particularly hard, but I do remember the toss in, on, on Boxing Day in 2010 where it was that all the stats said it was a sort of bat first ground at the MCG. You know, Boxing Day, 98,000 people there, and uh, it was a bit overclassed, but the weather forecast was for it to get better as the day went on and so really there there was a lot to take in there and I think our bowlers were telling us that we should bat first and I sort of went against everyone and decided to bowl first and we uh, we bowled them out for 98 and we were 157 for none at the end of play so it was one of those that came off but I remember the time going this is a high risk one. Right? If this doesn't work, you know, th- this is the ashes that could be gone. So, you know, it's those moments where you've really got to sort of back yourself and, and try and make the decision you make the right one, like just commit to it fully. Luckily, it came off. Was that totally your decision or was there a committee of of what to do? I think there are a few people that just sort of try and influence you one way or the other, but I think it was e- equally split on that occasion. So... You know, it's one of those that uh, I was going to say, that's why I get paid the big bucks. But <laughs> I don't think I get paid. Nearly, I got paid nearly as much as I do now. But um, yeah, you have those moments as captain where it's tricky. I was going to say then the hardest decision off the field. Well, I, I think if I'm honest, I think the decision to retire when I did, like I think that felt really hard because I knew what a big decision it was. And I was still playing well enough. Like I could still go on for another couple of years. So for me, I, you know, I think it was it was one that sort of tortured me for a while, actually, as I suppose all retirements do one way or another. But for me in particular, I, I found that hard. I felt myself really sort of pulled between my need and desire and want to be around for my kids and and obviously my sort of obligations to English cricket. And that, that's always a tricky um, sort of, you know, mental kind of, procedure to go through to figure out what comes out first Hmm. how old were you when you retired Uh, i think i was 34 so compared to jimmy you're a spring chicken yeah exactly yeah i mean i mean he's obviously the outrider in all of this like nothing what of what he's done makes sense to anyone quite frankly especially as a bowler Uh, but i think what's that shown is he's retained the the motivation and the desire and the hunger and all that sort of stuff you need to be a, a performer at the top level and he's been brilliant with the you know lucky with his body in a way as well but 
I'd certainly got to the stage where it just I, I felt like I pretty much achieved everything I wanted to in the game, and so I, I was worried that I was going to keep doing it potentially for the wrong reasons, which were like you know money and whatever, like which which is not the right reasons to be playing cricket for England. Did you have an immediate plan after that? Not specifically, no. I mean, I I always wanted to sort of give myself a bit of time, and you know, I knew that I'd probably get some opportunities with Sky doing the commentary stuff, but I, I, I just wanted to sort of get away from it all and put my career to bed. So I sort of wrote my autobiography and then um, start the next chapter. But I'm sure we'll get into it later. That wasn't an easy process, and I don't think it is for anyone, actually. You know, coming to terms with the... It really felt like grief, actually. The death of a career at the age of 35 or whatever... It was a hard process to go through. When you talk about grief, I guess, that brings up the five stages of grief. And, you know, the first one being a denial <laughs> that it's actually happening. And the second one being angry. Is Were you sort of at times angry potentially with yourself for doing it too early? Were there times sort of in the years after where you were, you sort of looked back and went, I shouldn't have done that. I could have kept going. No, I never, no, I never regretted that decision. And I think I, I was lucky because that was a decision that I got to make. I mean, most cricketers don't have the the opportunity to make that decision. It gets made for them. So uh, that was not a problem. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes it was quite sh- shocking, is probably not the right word, but it, it was surprising how quickly you're forgotten about, you know, so to speak, having been such a sort of integral part of things. And then the, the show rolls on, doesn't it? And that's the same for everyone. But I suppose when you do give your heart and soul to something and it means so much to you and you almost have a sort of surrogate family there when you're away on tour, it's quite a hard thing to suddenly be on the outside and nothing's ever the same again. Like it's a very different relationship you have with everyone. And of course, the team rightly has to move on and there's no point in them worrying about or pining for someone that was in the team previously because it's that's not constructive. So um, that, I think that sort of really hit home in the in the sort of six months or so after I retired. And it brings me on to this thought I had earlier. Are you aware of people going, that's, that's Andrew Strauss, he used to be England cricket captain. Do you ever get used to that? Do you ever get used to the fame? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I think fame is probably the wrong word for me, really. I mean, I, I do get recognised occasionally, but, you know, people always almost exclusively very respectful and it's a great feeling to know that people you brought some joy to people's lives or whatever or there were some memorable moments that that will stick with them for a long time so I think if you ask Ed Sheeran or someone or what fame's like I think he might have a different answer to me but um you know I think cricketers have always been lucky in this country that number one that we you know we are recognized but number two that we're not like footballers that that it's so kind of intense that you can't go about your daily business as you would otherwise and certainly cricketers in India would be in that category where you know they've almost got to sort of shut themselves off from the real world to one degree or another yeah sure I think you're famous I mean it's certainly famous in in my household <laughs> um and just bringing in that sort of sense of what you did afterwards, how did the ECB role come about? Well, I mean, you might remember that England went over to Australia and got whacked, and um, and then the 2015 World Cup came along and they got whacked badly in that as well. And so 
As a result of that, Tom Harrison, who's the CEO at the, the time, made the decision to change the director of cricket and effectively approached me and said, look, you know, I think you're the right person to do this. I'd love you to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I had a bit of a decision to make there because I, I was having quite an easy, cushy life, doing a bit for Sky and having quite a lot of time at home and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, I, you know, there was obviously an itch that needed to be scratched for me. I, I, I felt like... I was getting a bit frustrated being on the outside and and telling people what I thought England should do, and I felt like, you know, I need to stand up and and try and do that myself. Um, and in in doing so, I felt like it was going to be a really good learning experience for me. And so, yeah. So after a bit of umming and ahhing and sort of making sure the family was all right with it, then yeah, I came on as director of cricket between 2015 to to the back end of 2018. And what did you feel was like your biggest achievement in that time? Well, the one thing we were focused on was winning the 2019 World Cup. Like that was the thing that was keeping us all up at night. That was what we had a, a specific sort of plan and set of processes towards. And so I, I really feel like with that goal in mind, we really transformed white ball cricket in this country. And I only played a very small part in that. And Owen Morgan and Trevor Bayliss and all those players that came in, you know, they're, they're the ones that deserve the plaudits. But I, I think to to shift mindset, approach, confidence, and to go from a a really kind of consistently poor white ball team to the number one team in the world and then winning the 2019 World Cup was an extraordinary performance by so many people. And I was glad to have been able to play my part in that. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, it certainly worked for 2019, didn't it? Something happened in the last four years, didn't it? Yeah, but you know, sport never stays the same. I think that's the point, isn't it? That... You know, it's a very dynamic thing. And the moment you feel like you've got it cracked, you're probably on the downside already. And maybe that's where we got to over the course of this World Cup. But do you think it was something to do with the preparation? I heard something along the lines of how much white ball cricket had been played to 2015 to 2019 compared to 19 to 23. And I'm sure that had something to do with the pandemic. Yeah, well, I think so. and But it's also very hard to focus on two things at the same time you know I think while we were very focused on winning the 2019 World Cup I think probably we slightly took our eyes off the ball with test cricket you could argue over the last two couple of years or so we've done the opposite which has been very focused on test cricket and had some extraordinary successes there perhaps almost by default that means less attention going on white ball cricket the challenge is to be able to do both at the same time which Annoyingly, Australia have been able to do quite a lot over the last 30 years or so. And obviously, India have got such depth now that uh, they're able to do that as well. Yeah, it is extraordinary how Australia seemed to just pull it out the, culturally, how it is over there. But and they weren't expected this time around, were they? And suddenly they're coming through and beating India in India in front of whatever it was, 100,000. Incredible achievement. I know, it's highly irritating, isn't it? <laughs> Very irritating. <laughs> anyway, uh, they must be doing it, something right. It is, well, right. But, I mean, isn't that how we came out of the 90s? I mean, you know, growing up watching cricket in the 90s was not exactly inspirational stuff. And then wasn't the model to look at Australia and look at the academies and, and then actually bring it back? Yeah, I think there was a bit of that, actually. In fact, there was a lot of it. I I think um, we were doing a lot of navel gazing going... The 1990s was England's worst performing decade ever. And so the early 2000s was like, this can't go on anymore. And and there was a template there that was set by Australia around their academy, etc. I I think 
English cricket hardened up to a certain degree. I, I think over the probably the last 15 years or so, we've got a little bit more confident in doing it our own way and not just copying the Aussies. But, you know, we're still held back by various structural issues in the game. I, I don't want to bore the listeners on this podcast, but, you know, the, the truth is we play too much cricket. There's not enough... Uh, too much dilution in terms of our top cricketers, so the standard's not high enough, and um, we're sort of we're performing with one arm tied behind our back. There's no doubt about it. And you, you were very generous towards the you know the the light going back towards the success of 2019, Owen Morgan and Trevor Bayliss, etc., and all the, all the other players, and you said it was you know to do with them. Was that around the time that you were knighted? I think. Uh, well, I got I got knighted actually in 2019. So you know, I think that was after I obviously gave up the position and after Ruth died as well. So you know, I think it was definitely after the first red for Ruth, and so it was a bit of a combination, I think, of cricket exploits and charity. I think. Okay, interesting. I was going to ask from a cricketing point of view, did you feel worthy of it of of that title and of that of that gong? Well, I just think no one ever feels worthy of it. I mean, I, I, no is a simple answer, not at all. When you go to Buckingham Palace and you're picking up your gong, you, you realise those people that are surrounding you, you know, what a contribution they've made to society. And there you are, someone who's just like whacked a leather ball around for a bit. You know, it, it doesn't feel quite right, to be honest with you. But at the same time, if someone thinks you're worthy to receive it, you, you know, it's a very humbling and honouring experience to be able to have that bestowed upon you we'll come back to Ruth and the foundation in a, in a moment but just all of that crescendoing I guess to that point in your life do you feel that going to Cordy Court going to Radley the upbringing that you had getting to and then coming through to being England captain do you think that that was an advantage or do you feel that it was a disadvantage huge advantage right huge. Yeah, I think in all sorts of different ways. You know, not an advantage necessarily in, you know, me being a great person or anything, but I think in terms of preparing you for being in a team environment, being very independent, being away from home for long periods of time, certainly as a captain, speaking in public and, and not being afraid to lead, the sort of grounding that I had in my sort of technique and everything that, that, that I went through my schooling with, and also dealing with emotions you know or not dealing with them in a way like keeping them locked up I, I think really helped me in, in international sport there's no doubt about it it didn't set me up particularly well to deal with Ruth's illness quite frankly and, and her death but I think for an international sportsman and it, it you know unfortunately I know more and more people mental health become more and more of a, a topic and more acceptable for people to talk about it but there is still a prevailing attitude and maybe even necessity in top-level sport for you to suck it up and get on with it. Because as soon as you sort of let it out, it's quite hard to put it back in again, if that makes sense. And so that's why I think you find a lot of top sports people that are, are privately tortured, but publicly pretend everything is, is fine. Right. And as we've seen in the news lately, Owen Farrell, for example, on, on the rugby side of it and all couple of years back now but Ben Stokes what I find interesting about that is the way in which he's come back and the sort of freedom of expression he's had and sort of almost instilled in the team through being seemingly 
carefree about, I, I don't want to quote him, I don't want to get his words wrong, but not caring as much about the result, but actually the way in which he does does it and going about that. And the freedom of self sort of almost comes out in the freedom of the way that he and the team are playing. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ben's a, a very unique individual on so many different levels. And I, I think, firstly, that that is his character. He is a bit more of a free spirit. Uh, secondly, as an all-rounder, I think it gives you you got two bites of the cherry all the time. And thirdly, he was, yeah, he was someone that never really reacted well to being constrained and contained. And so when he got the captaincy, it was absolutely right. He did it his way. And the combination of the McCullum has been an absolute genius move by Rob Key to bring them in together. And I think absolutely right. You know, top level sport, often you're battling with yourself and often you're battling with the fear of failure. And to sort of remove that for the players has been, you can't half, you have to go the full hog on that. Like you can't half do it. And for them to commit to it in such a way, been revelationary, hasn't it? And it goes to show that at the top level, it's not to do with technique or anything. It's to do with mindset all the time. It comes back to how you're feeling about yourself, how you able you are to control your emotions, how able you are to deal with fear. And also having the sort of the freedom and the space in your mind to be able to do it over a period of time and not just doing it once. You know, that consistency is such a big part of it as well. So if I can just pick up on what you're just saying, that from a sports point of view, you probably give some credit of your success to actually being able to lock up your emotions. But in a personal way, and when your wife died... That didn't actually set you up, for, I guess, if it can be a success at all for anyone. Of course, it's very difficult. But how did you deal with that? I mean, I mean, I guess the question I've got is like, what is it like to know that your wife is going to die? Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, I, you know, you talk about those stages of grief and there was a lot of denial there, you know. Well, yeah, I know that that's what the the diagnosis is but one day at a time and the, you know these things can go on for a long period and let's let's not worry about what might happen in the future and you know really sort of just keep that that elephant in the room tucked in the corner somewhere and crack on like I've always done you know I think that that's what I my my intention was to begin with and you know obviously take some time off work and uh, etc but I, I think over over that the period of uh, the year or so after a diagnosis I think few things happened number one Ruth really felt like for her to enjoy the rest of the time she had on this earth she had to prepare me and the boys for what was to come and that meant us going to see a counsellor this amazing woman Jenny Thomas who really facilitated those really very tough conversations you have to have firstly between Ruth and I and then between us and and the kids as well and then also once that dialogue started it allowed both of us to talk a bit more freely about how we were feeling. And of course, you know, as as we got to the back end of Ruth's life, there was a, I suppose, a, a ramping up, a, a, the dial sort of ramped up in terms of the emotional element. And that was as sad as it was and as, as difficult as it was, it was also, there was some really special stuff there around us both understanding and appreciating what's important, what's not important, maybe communicating more effectively together, being more open and honest with each other, and both wanting to, in Ruth's words, do death well. 
And so that was the focus for us. And, you know, when she did die in December 2018, uh, you know, I feel like we we were kind of mainly able to achieve that, however painful it was. And then that's one thing. And then there's, of course, the reality of two boys with their mum not around anymore and me having to play mum and dad and trying to work out what this new chapter in our lives looked like. You know, that that was a... You know, an incredibly tough time. But I, I think up to Ruth's death, it was more about just embracing and savouring the moment and staying in the present as much as we could. Thanks for sharing that. And so that was the counselling together. But how did you find support or how did you share the sort of, I guess, the sadness and pain that you were in? Who who would you go to to sort of have those conversations? Or did you do the professional sportsman thing and, and lock it up? Or did you have friends or family that you spoke to or a group or? I, I mean, I definitely found myself yearning to speak to people that have been through it before, something similar before. So, you know, in, in a lot of cases, my friends and family, while they wanted to help, couldn't really help. Like I, I wanted to to know what people had learnt and what was going to be difficult coming up. And I just feel like you people can give the, the most well-meaning advice, but it's like someone who's never driven a car telling you how to drive a car. Like, it's it's pointless, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, so, so there are various people that I came into contact with who'd been through something similar. Jenny, the counsellor, I went and saw very regularly, and, um, and she was beyond helpful. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of... I also did quite a lot of reading and whatever, jotting down thoughts and... I've never been the sort of person that would get emotional in public, particularly. The, the emotional stuff that I did have, I did mainly in, in private. But one, well, obviously one of the things I was trying to sort of instill with the boys was that they had permission to feel angry or sad or whatever they felt. I wanted them to know they had permission to voice that. And so I had to sort of try and role model that at home, which which I was trying to do, you know. So if I was sad or angry, I'd I'd say, look, you know, I had a really tough day today, etc. So, you know, we were trying to do the opposite of that kind of stoic, stiff upper lip, like let's not talk about any of this ever again. Yeah, so that's what I was trying to do. I, I, I don't think I always did it successfully, but that, that, that was definitely the intent. Was there permission to cry? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I cried a lot in front of the boys. That They cried themselves some... One of my boys sort of did it a bit more than the other, but no issues with that, you know. And I think uh, Ruth was always very good at that as well. So it's a huge part, I think, of dealing with grief is to be able to let that emotion out in some way. And um, it, it's interesting or when people are sort of talking about people that are going through grief, they will often go, oh, you know what, that person's doing really well. They're, they're cracking on with life. You know, they're moving forwards. It's amazing how unaffected they are. And, you know, isn't that great? And then there are other people that, that are a bit down and depressed and crying and are sort of stuck in the loss. People go, oh, they're, they're, that person's really struggling. But actually... The truth is that neither one of those is right. You need a bit of both. And certainly the ones that don't show any emotion and just crack on with life are probably the most vulnerable, actually, because they're the ones that are just not pretending it never happened, right, and not dealing with anything. And at some stage, that's going to hit them like a ton of bricks. My counsellor talked very much about dealing with the grief, like being sort of loss-orientated and restorative and... You need to have a balance of both of those. You, you can't you can't over-index on one without having the other. 
did you go into any kind of depressive behaviors as well of sort of avoidance yeah no i, I mean I, i've been very lucky in that regard I've, I've never never been depressive or depressed uh you know i think that it's hard for me to actually understand what that is actually i i was sad but i there was no time where i was like you know i, I can't get out of the house and you know that, that sort of darkness came over I, I just never had that i suppose i'm just very lucky that that's that's not in my makeup i suppose but it's a uh... Amazing credit to the healing as well that you did through that process that, as you said, you got to deal with it. Otherwise, it comes back and snaps you further down the line. Yeah, and I, look, I mean, I think it, it didn't always, it wasn't a linear thing. Like, there were, yeah, there definitely, there was a period probably about 12 months or so ago where I went through a really tough patch where it's kind of like, I was quite angry with a lot of people for whatever reason, like... And that was sort of sort of delayed grief coming out, I think. And, and there were a couple of things that triggered that for me. But never kind of like, yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't in a, a great place, I think, at that point. But I, I don't think it was depressive. I think it was, yeah, as I said, it was just a sort of delayed onset of grief. And sometimes it's hard to articulate or think about this stuff because it kind of hits you before you know what's actually happening here. And that's obviously the real challenge to be proactive about it. It's not easy. Hmm. And do you continue to go to counselling? Is it a continued thing or is it sort of... Less frequently now, but I do still occasionally, yeah. Um, and a, a bit more probably wrongly when uh, when I feel in not a great place. You know, you should probably do it a bit more regularly than that. But I feel like I'm sort of relatively self-sufficient now. I've, I've sort of got, you know, the, a way of doing things, a way, a way with dealing things that I think stands me in reasonable stead. And how was, play, you talked about playing the mum and dad, how was particularly playing that sort of more feminine role that was obviously a, a huge gap after Ruth's death? Yeah, honestly, I think I, I really struggled with that. You know, I think I was okay being around for the boys and doing drop-offs and pickups and generally sort of, you know, making meals and all that, like all that sort of stuff. I think I was fine at just that, that kind of, maternal kind of being there for them emotionally when they needed it I, I was less good at and certainly you know it's interesting because when I look back at my relationship with Ruth I think we we sort of tag team that stuff so well but it's it's very hard to you know to react to something in a way that's not natural to you so you know if the boys really needed comfort or whatever there'd be a lot of times where I'd be like come on mate just get on with it type thing uh, or I'd be thinking that, but of course, you know, often mums are just really good at that kind of like making them feel supported and heard and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've been brilliant at that, if I'm honest. I, I think the boys have, you know, given me extraordinary support, which is something that I didn't think would happen, actually. I, you know, I was surprised by how much support they gave me. And we've learned to do things differently. And I, I think the, you know, the boys... I've got a couple of friends of Ruth's who've, who've played a very sort of maternal role for them. You know, sometimes it's even just mums of friends or whatever. Like, there have been certain people that they've been able to connect with on that level, which has helped a lot. Amazing. So they sort of, during the, I guess, the last five years, you guys have done things mostly in the sort of paternal sense. And what, so what have you, like, really enjoyed doing with them? Playing golf? <laughs> a lot of that yeah um yeah holidays generally have been great like i think one of the things that i felt was 
we need to go away a lot. Like, you know, I think it's a get out of Dodge for a bit and give ourselves space to to think. You know, school is so busy and, you know, work is busy. And so just, just having those moments to be able to sit back and remember Ruth and have conversations with each other. I mean, it's just such a hard thing to do and on the day-to-day kind of roller coaster that you're on. So a lot of holidays, you know, doing some like one-on-one stuff with the boys. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think we've just formed a, a lovely little team, the boys and me, that in a way that our, our situation is unique and therefore our team is unique. And yeah, we look out for each other. And it's obviously changing because the boys are getting older now and my oldest has just turned 18. And, you know, things, again, things will evolve and change. But uh, we kind of, you know, it, obviously Ruth's death has brought us all much closer together. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Like It's um, what can come out of such sadness, right? I mean, that's the other, I, I guess it's the way you have to look at life, isn't it? To be positive about it rather than what we don't have. Yeah, well, that, I think that's right. Yeah, I think I think you've got to, yeah, you, you've got to put your front foot forward and, and move on in life and make the best of it. And as you say, if there are positives that can come out of it, let, let's try and sort of focus on them. And, and, and of course... I think in the early days after Ruth died, the, the sort of founding of the Ruth Strauss Foundation and the developing of that, you know, I think that 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 really helped me and probably helped quite a few people in and around, you know, Ruth's friends and family, et cetera, et cetera, to know that there was a sort of focal point to move forwards to. And that's still the case today. I mean, five years down the line, it's still such a passionate thing for me and the boys and everyone in the, involved in the foundation for it to be a worthwhile legacy for Ruth and, you know, making sure we're sort of executing on what it was she wanted that foundation to do. Right, which was doing death well, right? Yeah, exactly. Doing death well, helping families go through grief, raising awareness and, and knowledge sharing into non-smoking lung cancer. You know, those were the things that she'd written down on that little piece of paper when we we discussed setting up a foundation. And so... Those are our, our guiding principles as a foundation. And and then it's not just what we do, it's how we do it and how we are as a as a foundation. You know, very very keen to make sure that Ruth's spirit sort of runs through every pore of the foundation and that it doesn't get sort of sidetracked to being something it, it isn't. So that's something we're working very hard on. Amazing. And how many families have you helped to date? Do you have that kind of... Data. Well, it's hard to put a number of thousands. I mean, we've obviously, you know, we help families directly through our family support service. So that that is our practitioners helping them and, and you know, preparing those families to have those tough conversations. But then through training up healthcare professionals that, you know, they're working with hundreds of families every year, each one of them. So yeah, I mean, hopefully that's many thousands. And we're just starting a project, which is uh, training up sort of staff in schools to be able to provide that support for kids as well so just trying to cast our net further and further but it's still a drop in the ocean there are forty thousand kids every year that are going to lose a parent and um nowhere near helping all of them so there's a long way to go still yeah very valuable drop in the ocean it's amazing what's being achieved and and how you do it was um i was going to ask you that red for wreath day at lords which is I mean, incredibly powerful and I guess emotionally charged around the ground. How do you, honestly, with 35, whatever, 36, 37,000 people all dressed in red, how do you hold it together? I mean, it's quite an event, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. I mean, and certainly the first year just absolutely blew me away. I, I, I just, you know, I, I couldn't register or, or, or really come to terms with it in any way, shape, or form. Over the years, you become a bit more used to it, and, and becomes a bit more of a sort of a bit more routine. I think that's probably not the right word to describe it, but it, it's still a very emotional time. You know, I, I feel myself sort of tensing up in the lead up to it, and then you've got sort of five days where. You're kind of on show and on display and you're trying to sort of have the right conversations with people and trying to make as big an impact as you can. But it it does feel very much in performance mode. And then it finishes and you sort of crumple in a heap somewhere. You know, (laughs) that's kind of the way it works. And um, obviously it's always worthwhile. And we're just blown away by the support that we continue getting from the the cricket family but uh yeah i mean it's it's a big week there's no doubt about it yeah i'm sure and how much has been raised in the last uh, i guess there have been four summers is it four summers since so yeah out of red for ruth that's a good question uh probably we'd be well over three million pounds now out of those events and then um obviously we do other events as well so um uh yeah i mean it, it it's extraordinary so you know that those are people digging very deep into their pockets at a time which it's not easy to do so but i, I suppose they wouldn't do it if the, if the cause didn't resonate with people and you know it's such a an extraordinary thing the number of people that have come up to me who might be in their 60s or 70s or and come up and just go look i i love what you're doing my parents died when i was 12 15 10 and it was never spoken about again. And it, it's affected me all my life. And so you, people really need this help and support to to do it differently. And so every time I hear that, I, it just gives me more motivation to extend our reach and to get to places that perhaps we haven't got to yet, because unfortunately, it's just happening to too many people. And that's not going to change anytime soon. There's only going to be more people, unfortunately. So we need to try and be there for as many of them as, as we can be. Yeah, I mean expressions on the other side of depression and it when people can actually start to talk this stuff through with people who understand it or have been through it you know the whole the weight comes off the shoulders right and just the world just feels a lighter place yeah Um, that that is so true yeah that is so true And, and i think um you know so often people don't know where to turn to and it probably is not unlike depression in a way that you feel like you've got nowhere to go you're sort of boxed in and and especially if you're the sort of surviving parent, like the, there's so much for you to do. Like you, it, it's very hard to to do and to give yourself space to think and process at the same time. And so, yeah, the the, the better families are prepared for what's to come. Hopefully, the the easier that that process becomes when when the eventuality does occur. It's never going to be easy, but hopefully, it is that much easier. Sure. And so if people want to know more about the foundation, where, where should they go? Yeah, so just RuthStraussFoundation.com is the best place. We've got all, you know, loads of stuff, loads of information on there, details on events and how to support, et cetera, as well. But a lot of it, obviously, about the mission and what we're trying to do. So, yeah, please go on, on the website. Amazing work. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. It's been great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community for men, please visit the website, theprivilegedman.com, for more details.